This week, we begin chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 of Hebrews is called the faith chapter, or also referred to as the heroes of the faith chapter. The word faith appears 25 times. That roughly means about 64% of the verses, about one in every other verse, the word faith appears. It very, very heavy. Faith is not only integral to this chapter, it's also integral to our everyday lives. However, before we get ahead of ourselves and start talking about Hebrews chapter 11, let's do a little bit of a review just in case you weren't here last week. Now, last week we wrapped up chapter 10's final verses and we spent time answering common questions that both we as believers and those who don't believe in Christ all have. We saw examples of how God fulfills his promise to draw near and to be found by all of those who honestly seek him. We were reminded of our struggle of sin, that when we struggle with sin, it's less of a sign of weakness and more of a sign of a healthy conscience, that God is still working in us. As every single one of us, myself included, still struggle with sin at some level while we're here in this life. And lastly, we saw that God uses us as his hands and feet to bring his love to the world. We each will at one point find ourselves asking for a miracle. There are an infinite ways that God can answer that request. Yes, he can instantly wipe away your debt. Yes, he can instantly heal He can fix that knock in your car that you just can't seem to trace down. He can heal the broken relationship in a moment. And all of this is well within his power. He is not weak or unable. But most of the time, he chooses to use us as his ambassadors. He uses us in our own obedience to him to accomplish his will and purpose on this earth. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a prophet by the name of Elijah, God worked some crazy miracles through him. If you ever read his account, it's amazing. Early in Elijah's ministry, God used him to prophesy that there would be a three-year drought upon the land. There was going to be no more rain for three years' time. It was a result of the disobedience of the nation. And the current king who had rejected God, and they had sought after false idols. So after this prophecy, which didn't put him on the king's good side, actually the king wanted him for his life, Elijah goes into hiding. Eventually he finds himself in the land of Zarephath, which is, if you look at the map, it's just north of the nation of Israel, right on the the edge of the Mediterranean. So when he arrives in Zarephath, he finds a widow who is preparing the last of her food for her final meal for her and her son. Uh, Things have gotten so bad that she has no way to provide, and they're thinking that at this point they're just going to eat this meal, then starve and die not long afterwards. God uses Elijah to test and strengthen the faith of this woman, and in return, he uses the widow and her son to expand the faith of Elijah as he sees God work miracles for two who had never worshipped God at the temple proper. A woman who probably never even stepped into the nation of Israel and wasn't an Israelite herself. At that time, and even through uh, the history of the nation, Israel's people always thought that they were more special and more blessed, and God did choose them, but often they forgot that God loves everybody. Yet God showed compassion on her and her son, and God performed amazing miracles time and again through Elijah's life. 
However, more so, as we look at the life of Elijah and those in the Old Testament, we see time and again that he uses people to affect people. And that's how he still uses us today. So continuing our trend from last week, we have taken more words away from our memory verse. It's slowly eroding. By the time we are done, there will be nothing left except for a reference. So let's figure out what words are missing. That's for the benefit of those who are just catching up with us. Uh, and then we'll say it together. So, but, what's next? Without, there you go. What's the next word? Faith, there you go. It is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently, you guys have got this. Look at that. You guys aren't even trying. Okay. So let's say this one together. Okay. You guys seem to have this one. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's Hebrews eleven six. We're going to be covering that very verse today. Now, you might not remember that we started this back in October. It was October 22nd. Uh, we started the book of Hebrews. We paused the last week in November as I was away on vacation and then for the entire month of December. So it's actually been five less weeks than it seems because we were talking about Advent the entire month of December. But we're now finally, after several months, starting to see the finish line of the book of Hebrews. Last week, uh, we talked about this life having uh, requires an endurance out of us. To make it through this life, you seem to have to need an endurance that is instilled in your life. And this book has been a bit of an endurance run. However, while we've been at this book for some time now, we're finally approaching the finish line. We're starting to see the author's points, and he's starting to wrap things up. Now, Chapters 11 through 13, which is what we're just starting today, the 11, 12, and 13, um, they're kind of his second point, okay? So if you look at the book and you kind of break it down, one through nine is his first major point. Jesus is better than everything. And then you go into 11 through 13, it all hinges on faith. And 10, like we said last time, is kind of the hinge chapter. So if you really want to know the book but not have to read the whole book, read 10, and it'll give you a general idea of what's happening. Now, this week, our sermon title is Examples in Faith. Examples in Faith. We're going to be looking at three different examples as we're going to work our way through chapter 11. Now, you come to church. You hear the preacher talk about this word faith. You turn on maybe the television. You listen to a Bible preacher. He, too, will talk about faith. It's a very common topic in religious circles. We talk about it quite a lot feels like all the time. We talk about having a deep faith, about having a strong faith, and we talk about wanting to have more faith in our lives. But when you break it down, what exactly is faith? How do we define the word faith? Back in 2009, some of you will remember, um, I knew a man who had faith that his retirement was secure. That is until the housing market crashed 2009. He lost three quarters of his retirement overnight. What do you have faith in? Is that the kind of faith that we're talking about? Or is there something more to it? What about all those who place their faith in other religions? Is their faith better than mine or is it different? Maybe they've just misplaced it. 
When it comes to the Bible, we talk about this word a lot. And thankfully, the Bible, because God is all-knowing and he knew we would need a definition for this particular word, he gives it to us. He actually defines this very specific word, what it is and what it is not. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you're going to want to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 if you're following along with a physical Bible. Uh, it's at the bottom right of the page if you're using one of our chair Bibles of 1843, page 1843 in our chair Bibles. We're going to begin with verse 1, but I'll put it on the screen as well, just in case. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, theoretically, there are two ways to get to God, to, to get into his presence. The first way is by works. It is the things that you do in this life. If, and this is an if, if you can present yourself in perfection throughout the entirety of your life by following God's law and command perfectly, both in your thoughts and in your actions, from the moment you take your first breath all the way until your last breath, then God will accept you. And you can come into his presence because you've lived in perfection from the very moment you began to the end, both in thoughts and action, never breaking his laws once. However, our author, if you've been with us, has spent the last 10 chapters showing us that only one person has ever done this in the entire history of humanity, and that it is completely impossible for the rest of us to follow in his footsteps. And since the first way is impossible to us, the good news is that there's a second way, which is by faith. We talk about having faith in Jesus. But what about the men and women of the Old Testament that lived on the earth before Jesus came? How, how did they get into God's presence if they couldn't have faith in Jesus as their sacrifice? How did they get to heaven? How did they make it there? What did they place their faith in? So at first glance, many will look at the Bible and they'll say, well, they must have just kept the law of Moses perfectly. They, they, they must have just done everything exactly right. However, as our author is about to point out, this isn't the case. And this is backed up by their personal actions, which are recorded by Moses, the law that they were supposed to have followed himself in the Old Testament. So our passage says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now, we get this from the Greek word, hypostasis, hypostasis. At its base, it's a scientific term. Uh, it's opposite of a hypostasis or a hypothesis or a theory, sorry. When we're talking about the word substance, the word substance is translated into the word hypostasis. It's the opposite of a hypothesis or a theory. So when we, when we have a hypothesis or a theory, we base it on very concrete facts, things we can actually count, we can look at, we can touch, we can feel. We take that, but this is the opposite of that. The faith that our author is talking about isn't just some random faith or some random thing. It's actually quite specific. The word substance points us to the idea of a foundation. Hypostasis points us to a foundation. So the hypostasis of faith. You could use the word cornerstone instead of uh, foundation. In the New Testament, we're actually pointed to a cornerstone multiple times. And the cornerstone is the foundational building block on which all else is placed. Without it, nothing else can or will line up properly. The cornerstone we are pointed to is Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12, it says this word. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, 
which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven that is given by men which we must be saved. So Jesus is clearly the cornerstone. You can't read that verse any other way. But what about those in the Old Testament? You know, like I said, the ones who lived before Jesus came as their sacrifice. Well, last week, we actually hinted at this answer when we talked about how the apostle John introduced us to Jesus when he called him the Word. Jesus came as the physical representation of the Word of God. Before Jesus came, God revealed his will through his prophets and his written Word. Therefore, the substance or hypostasis of our faith isn't found in some chemical composition or mathematical formula. It isn't found in some scientific discovery. It's found solely resting on God's word. And this is what our author is about to tell us. As he says in Hebrews eleven two. the elders obtained a good testimony by it. So the question is, if he says in verse 2, it, by it, what is it? It is a faith that has been placed solely on God's word, a trust in his promises. So just in case we miss his point, he actually reiterates himself in verse 3. He says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So the faith that our author is speaking of is not some random faith, not some random thing. It's a faith that is not unfounded and unreliable, but rather he points us to squarely at the maker of heaven and earth. He says we can have a faith that is rock solid even though we can't see the one we have faith in. We can know that God himself formed the world from nothing. That which we see was formed by that which we cannot see. Interestingly, those who believe in evolution believe that the universe was formed by an uncaused explosion. The big difference between us and them is that we believe that God, God did that explosion on purpose. We said God, you know, in the beginning God said this and then it was. We actually go back to the same evidence. We just believe that God directed all of that. We have a completely different view on that. Now, they say it was an accident. We say it was on purpose. And God guided every single moment with great care. The men and the women of the Old Testament did not live their lives by perfection of the law to obtain their spot in the kingdom of God. And the author tells us that they, like us, had to live their lives by faith in God and on his promises. That in this, they weren't actually much different than us. So from this point forward, uh, verse 3 onwards to the end of the chapter, he uses 10 very recognizable figures from the Old Testament that so we can see the faith that they had in their lives. That it wasn't their actions or their failures or their keeping of the law, but that it was by their faith that actually gained them favor with God. Their personal lives and their personal faith. And by doing so, they set a personal example for us. So he starts chronologically. So first, chronologically then, we start with Abel. Verse 4 says these words, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, though he being dead still speaks. Now if you're unfamiliar with the story of Cain and Abel, you're probably at least familiar with their parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, well, Adam is the one responsible for the sin that we have in our world. He put the sin curse on mankind by his disobedience. He was the first created man, created in perfection, given a perfect nature, yet he still fell short. So the sin that he chose is the nature we inherit from him. 
Now, we're never told exactly what expectations God has told Adam and Eve when it came to making sin sacrifices. We actually don't quite know. We assume that it's reminiscent of the Mosaic law and what we see later, but we're actually not told. We just find out that the kids are, are doing whatever God has told them. According to this verse, Abel brought a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. He brought what God had required, and according to our verse, he brought it in faith. Cain became jealous, the favor that his brother had now earned, and he killed him as a result of his unchecked emotions, becoming the world's first murderer. The point of this passage and the reason that it's been written for us is to show that Abel's faith was displayed through his actions. Abel's faith was displayed through his actions. But it was that it his faith that was counted toward him. And this is reminiscent of what the God has told nation through the prophet Hosea. You see, the nation of Israel had this habit of performing actions, well, out of habit, rather than out of heart. They just went through the motions. Instead of having a heart behind it and desiring to be there with God, they just kind of went through the motions. They started coming to worship God, something as they culturally did. So they would come, like, like if they had church, okay, temple worship, they were coming more as a cultural identity, which we've talked about, rather than as a time to come and worship God. So they, like us, they liked easy rules to follow. I, I saw a meme recently, actually, it's not in my notes. It said, as a kid, I hated rules. Now I just wish someone would just line out exactly what I need to do every day. It would make life so much easier. Uh, and it's amazing the transition we go from, as kids, hating the rules of our parents, now wishing, God, can you just tell me exactly where I need to be, when I need to be? That would be amazing. We all want an easy-to-follow mathematical formula. They wanted a mathematical equation that looked a little bit like this. One, me, plus 60 minutes in a church service equals God likes me for seven days. Hey, I'm good, right? We all want something that's easy to follow that can add up and get where we want. They would attend temple worship out of obligation weekly, assuming that their presence in the service was what was keeping them in good relationship with God. And their distorted rationale, they had convinced themselves, if I can just make it to service on Sunday, then I earn God's favor for the next week. And bonus points if I bring my spouse and kids, right? Maybe a little bit longer. They had missed the entire point. So God had his prophet write to the people. He, he had them write these words in Hosea. He says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. It's easy to get caught up thinking that our occasional actions can somehow justify our regular actions. But when you become like them in that kind of mindset, we forget that what we do every day matters more than what we do once in a while. What you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while. And God wants our hearts more than anything else. So Abel stands as a testimony to us as one who has purposely sought after God with his heart first and then displayed that affection through his actions. So the next person that our author in Hebrews introduces us to uh, is another aspect that God is looking for in us. This is Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So like Abel before him, there isn't much we actually know about Enoch. We do know that his father, his name was Jared, and that he had a son named Methuselah, but that's about it outside of the fact that we know that he walked faithfully with God. 
In Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, I've actually got it in my notes. I'll read it for you. It says these words. This is all we know of Enoch. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. And in that last line, he says, he was no more because God took him away. Now, most commentators and biblical scholars are going to speculate that Enoch didn't just die, that God just took him to heaven one day. So could you imagine for a moment that you have such a close relationship with God that you're talking with him every day as, as an old friend, you know? You ever had an old friend over for coffee that you haven't seen in a while? You just, the hours pass away and you're just like, where did the time go? This is the kind of relationship that Enoch had with God. And one day God says, hey, why don't you just come over to my place at the end of the day? And then Enoch wasn't because he, God took him. And just like that, Enoch's time on earth is done. Through Enoch, we are shown that the consistency of life that God is looking for in each of us. God is looking for a consistency in our lives. Not turning to him just when times get bad, as so many often do, but purposely pursuing a relationship with him every day, whether it's good or bad. Enoch's example is what actually leads us to our memory verse, which you guys know this one. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Knowing that Enoch's life is the example that brings our author to penning these words, hopefully you can kind of begin to see the life that God is calling each of us to, every single one of us, every day. Enoch lived his life by faith. Every single day. You might not have caught it because you weren't reading it, but you were listening. Enoch actually came to faith in God after his firstborn son, Methuselah. That means he was 65. If you read the math there in Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, he was 65 when his first kid was born. He didn't follow God until partway through his life. Yet God still accepted him. Which is really interesting. Something happened around the birth of his son. Something changed his life drastically. And whatever it was, his life so changed that his faith became integral to every day part of his life. That by the time his life was over, God just invited him to come on home with him. Enoch diligently sought after God and he found him. And this is why you and I are called, we are called to do this today, to seek after God, to be found by him. Not just one day a week, but every day. In the big moments and in the small ones, in the hard times and in the easy ones. To become a people that base who we are and everything that we do off of our relationship with God. God becomes the center of our lives and it becomes healthy for us. Enoch tells us diligently seek after God every day. The last example that we're going to cover before wrapping up is Noah. Noah, in verse 7, says these words, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So, let's review before we move forward. Abel reminded us that our heart's condition is more important than the sacrifices that we bring. Enoch reminded us that our pursuit of God doesn't have to begin perfectly. He spent 65 years not pursuing God before he started pursuing God. 
As a person who started pursuing God in his 20s, I can attest that God will change your life the moment you accept him and start pursuing him. And it doesn't matter how late you start your journey. The point is, you started the journey. It doesn't matter where the journey begins, but the fact is that it should become a daily integral part of your life to pursue him. And through Noah, we're gonna see that through faith, we can trust God with our future. By faith is the way this verse starts. And it points us back into Noah in our starting verses. It shows us that faith is what showed Noah the things that he could not see with his eyes. By faith, Noah broke from what everyone else was doing and he chose to follow God into the unknown. Noah prepared for something that the world had never seen, that physically and scientifically didn't make sense. He followed God in faith into something that was completely unrealized at this point in life. Physically, it seemed impossible by human standards, yet even though he couldn't fully explain it in every detail, he still chose to trust God with his future. Now, I've talked a lot recently about how God draws each and every single one of us every day into a closer relationship with him. God comes into our lives and he says, hey, come into a closer relationship with me every single day through our circumstances. He gives us endless opportunities to come close to him. But so few choose to follow him and dive deeper into that relationship. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why does everybody get the call, every Christian get the call to dive into a deeper relationship, yet so few choose to do it? During my college years, as I was being prepared to go into full-time camp ministry, uh, you can tell how that turned out, I'm here at church, um, I was taught a game that I have used with kids and adults alike over the years, and this game is called Tank. And there's a picture of it with the junior church, uh, uh, actually it's the family church kids, uh, and they were about to get into it. That starts off as minefield, hint, hint, guys, if you're going to be with us next Tuesday. So in this game, a border is given. You've got a rope that goes around what looks like a minefield. And uh, you have something that's filling it. These are cut up foam noodles because they end up getting uh, tossed at one another. So what happens is you have somebody standing on the outside of the line. uh, And they can see and they can give you instructions. And you get placed in the middle of all this chaos. And you get on your knees and you're blindfolded. And to be able to win, you have to throw an object and hit somebody else. Okay, that's why it's called tank. You become the tank. You throw projectiles at whoever else is in the circle. But you have to listen to somebody on the outside that can see what's going on, even though you can't see your own circumstances. And the more participants that are inside this square, the funnier it gets because all chaos breaks loose. It's amazing, fun game to watch. So why do so few dive deeper into their relationship with God? I believe few dive deeper with God because of one word, fear. Many fear that they won't be able to hear God well enough. Some fear that they're going to fail. Others fear where God's going to lead them. God, I, I don't know if I can trust you leading me into that. Still others fear what will happen to the comfortable life that they think they're in charge of when it goes away. When we get to the book of James, we're going to find out that fear is the opposite of faith. So keep this message in your mind when we get to the book of James. Now, I started out this sermon by saying, technically, you can get to God by works. Though only one man in the entire race of humanity has ever done it. And he was God in human flesh. And it seems like that our lives stands at a crossroads. Do we pursue him by our own efforts? Or do we choose to trust what we cannot see 
what we cannot fully explain and take the leap of faith and trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. With this, I'm gonna close with two questions. Question number one, your life is defined by faith in something. And the question I have for you is, what do you have faith in? We all have faith in something. For some, it's finances, like that man that I was talking about. The guy worked at a Bible college and he was completely crushed by his finances. I understand why. I don't know what happened to him long after he lost all of that retirement. For others, it's health. We put our trust, hoping that our health will just endure long enough. Some of us, it's family and friends. We each live our lives by a measure of faith. Who or what do you have faith in? We are each called to live life by having faith in the God who has created us, to know and to live by his standards. The question I have is, have you done this in your life? Closing question. How do you approach your relationship with God if you have trusted him? Do you see it as a duty, as an item that has to be checked off your list? I went to church this Sunday. I did my devotions. I just got to get this one done and out of the way so I can move on. Or do you view it as the one thing that everything else in life revolves around? How do you approach your relationship with God? So many relationships, physical, I, I can base my relationship off of God. In some ways, I can look at it when we see marriage and spousal relationships. If you see a couple that is attending that relationship by a checklist, you see a relationship that's slowly falling apart. But when you approach that relationship as something that you love, that everything else revolves around the health of that, you see a good, thriving relationship. The question is, what kind of relationship do you have with God? Is it a checklist or is it integral and everything else hinges on it? Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you so much for your word and the testimony of those that we looked at today. Lord, help us to be reminded that this life is to be lived by faith. Help us to choose to have faith in you and to make our relationship with you a priority. Lord, I thank you so much that we don't have to have a perfect start, that we can even see through the figures today. Enoch, who was taken home by you, spent 65 years of his life doing his own thing, not knowing you, but he still made the change and trusted you. So Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you with our tomorrow as we trust you with our today. Help us to place the things that we cannot control into your hands and to know that you are doing good even though we can't see it. Lord, I thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.